When the Apostle Paul penned his letter to those whom he called the beloved, the beloved of Christ in Rome, at that time, the majority of Christians, or the majority of the Christians in Rome, as well as in the rest of the world, were Gentiles. They were not primarily Jews. Rome was an interesting place to have a church because initially Rome was composed of Jewish Christians. They had been at Pentecost. They went to Rome. They shared the gospel with their Jewish brethren and they came to Christ. And then part of Caesar's household and other Gentiles came to the Lord. And so it began as a Jewish church and as a Gentile Jewish church. And then Claudius the emperor kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And so then the church at Rome was strictly a Gentile church. And then when the Jews were allowed to turn to Rome, Priscilla and Aquila were two of those Christian Jews that came back to Rome. So once again, it was a Jewish Gentile church again. And at that time, though, still the majority of Christians in the world, the majority of Christians in, the, in, the, in Rome were Gentiles, sometimes referred to as the Greeks in the New Testament. That's anyone who is not Jewish. So this raised a serious question in Paul's day that he deals with in depth in Romans chapter 9. And the question is basically this. Why, for the most part, have God's old covenant people, the Jews, rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ? Why are most of the people who were given the law of Moses who were children of the promise, who had the temple services, and from whom is the Christ, separated from Christ, and accursed. And the Apostle Paul's short answer is found in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9, in the 6th verse here, where he says, They are not all true Israel who are descended physically from Israel. That is, just because a person is born a Jew doesn't mean that he or she is automatically saved and is automatically a recipient of the new covenant promises and blessing. And Paul has been showing us in Romans chapter 9 that salvation, salvation is always a result of God's active choice. It's God's active choice. So according to Romans 9 verse 16, salvation does not depend on the man who wills. It's not dependent upon the will of man. That is, man by his own will can be saved. He cannot be saved by his own will. And then he says, nor does it depend on the man who runs. That is, by his own works, what he does can be saved. But it's totally dependent upon God who has mercy. Now, this is good news for us because most of us here are not descended from Israel. Some of us have maybe just a little bit back in Bern, Switzerland, we discovered. <laughs> there was a little bit of Jewish blood in the Schlebach family. Some of you, it's, it's more recent. One side of your family uh, was Jewish. But it's good news for us as Gentiles because if salvation depended upon being a physical descendant of Israel or depended upon keeping the law of Moses, then we'd all be in big trouble. That is because we would perish in our trespasses and sins. But from the very beginning, from the foundation of the world, God never intended salvation to be granted only to Jews or to all Jews. So look at how this is good news in, verses, in verse 23 of this ninth chapter, verse 23. 23rd verse of the ninth chapter of Romans, Paul has been writing about God's right as the potter over the clay. 
God has a right from the same lump of clay, as it were, to make one vessel for honor and to make another vessel for dishonor. He has the right to make a beautiful vase, and he has the right to make a trash bucket or something worse that that might be used for. And why does he do this? Verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. These vessels of mercy into whom God pours his mercy, upon whom God gives his mercy, to those whom God makes known the riches of his glory includes us as Gentiles. See that in verse 24? Even us. That's us. Whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So in Romans chapter 9, in the verses I read this morning, verses 25 through 29, once again, Paul is going to prove his point and make his point by quoting Scripture, by quoting the Word of God. And he's going to quote from the prophets Hosea and Isaiah. And we see the main point in the second part of verse 26, the last part of the 26th verse of chapter 9, where Paul declares that the Gentiles, the Gentiles, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Gentiles. This was unthinkable to the typical Jewish mind of Paul's day, to any Jewish mind in Paul's day. The, the Gentiles, these people who are considered unclean, these people who were pagan idolaters would be called the sons of the living God. The hated Romans could be called sons of God. This was pure nonsense to them. But Paul gives us the scriptural basis. He gives us the prophetic basis here, prophesied in ages past, for why we as Gentiles can cry out, Abba, Father. Why we as Gentiles have been adopted into the family of God, how it is possible that we are the children of God. And just listen to how the Apostle Paul put it in his first letter, the Apostle Peter put it in his first letter in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Remember this, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You are the people of God. All y'all, as we'd say in Texas, are the people of God. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Peter goes on in the same passage to, to quote what Hosea or what Hosea is quoted by Paul here in Romans, he says, For once you were not a people. You were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To the Gentiles, God says, I will call you my people. You shall be called the sons of the living God. So please turn once again to Romans chapter 9, the 25th verse. Read verses 25 and, and 26 again. Paul quotes the prophet Hosea, same one that, that Peter quoted. I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in that same place where it is said to them, You are not my people, 
They shall be called the sons of the living God. So let's go back in the book of Hosea and see the words that Paul quotes here. So Hosea chapter 1, the first chapter of Hosea. If you haven't been to Hosea for a while, if you can find the big book of Ezekiel, (laughs) which is a larger book, kind of thumb through, right after Ezekiel comes the prophet Daniel. And right after Daniel comes Hosea. Hosea chapter 1. Now keep your finger there for a little bit as we give a little background for a while as I give some background to this. Hosea lived during the time when the kingdom of Israel was divided. After the death of King Solomon, the kingdom was split in two. The southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin became known as Judah as it was known in Jesus' day, still known as Judah. And Jerusalem was its capital, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, of the two tribes. And the northern ten tribes were known as Israel, were known as Israel. And Hosea's prophecies primarily have to do with Israel, the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom of Israel, from its conception after the split, was steeped in pagan idolatry and evil. Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, he built two temples in the north so the people would not go down to Jerusalem to worship because he didn't want their hearts turned to the rival kingdom of Judah in any way whatsoever. And so King Jeroboam made two golden calves. He put one in each of his two temples that he built and he told the people of Israel, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's just too much for you guys to do that. Don't do that. Behold your gods, these Baal calves. He said, behold your gods, O Egypt, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so he went right back to the sin of idolatry that the people of God committed right after they came out of Egypt. And when you look at the history of Judah, the south, and its kings, go back to the south now, you find that Judah had some evil kings but also had some some good kings. It also had some godly kings. It had some kings who served the Lord in Judah. But in the history of the northern kingdom, there were only pagan, idolatrous, evil kings. There was one king who who started out good and then he turned bad. bad, You know, and you can't see it from there, but over here is Judah. And you go down the kingdom of Judah, it says good king, good king, evil, evil, evil king, good, 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 evil. And you go down Israel, evil, it says here, they started out evil how they ended. So Jeroboam, first king, evil, evil. Nabob, evil, evil. You go down evil, evil. You come clear down here to Jehu during the time of Elisha. He started out good, but he turned evil. That's evil, 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 evil all the way down. It's just amazingly horrible. They served the Baals, they worshipped them. Now King Ahab, for example, was, pro- was the worst of the worst. Because as you read the history in First and Second Kings, it'll introduce a new king of Israel and said he did more evil than his fathers before him. Or he committed the same sin as Jeroboam, his father, you know, which means the pagan idolatry. And then we come to Ahab, who they say during the time of Elijah, who did more evil than all the kings before him. You know, and Elijah, uh, Ahab's down about two-thirds the way down. And so you take all those evil kings, and then you got Ahab. 
And you'll remember that when Elijah went head-to-head on Mount Carmel with 450 prophets of Baal, Ahab was king and Jezebel was his queen. Now, they preceded Hosea, but this is Israel's past history when we come to Hosea. And when Jezebel moved into the palace at Jezreel, and we're going to see that in a little bit, what about Jezreel? She brought 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of the Asherah who moved into the temple with her. The Asherah were the, the, the goddesses, and they worshipped them on what was called the high places on, on mountaintops. And so all of this tells us of something to the spiritual climate and culture to which the Lord spoke through the prophets, Elijah and Hosea and, and others. And now you have to really love and appreciate the prophet Hosea. Again, in Texas, we'd say, bless his heart. (laughs) Bless his heart. God not only gave Hosea the words to speak to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, but he used Hosea's life and he used Hosea's family as a living illustration, a living object lesson of the paganism and the evil and the spiritual poverty of the nation. So now look at Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. The second verse of the first chapter of Hosea. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Hosea, go find yourself a prostitute, marry her, and have children by this prostitute. Why? Because that is what Israel is doing spiritually. They are following after other gods. They are committing spiritual adultery, that is, idolatry. In verse 3, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu, that was the king at the time, for the bloodshed at Jezreel, and I put an end to the kingdom of the house of of Israel. Now that Jezreel, that sounds familiar because remember Jezreel is where the palace of Ahab and and Jezebel had been located. It, It was the center of all this pagan idolatry mixed with the politics of the day. It's where Jezebel would later meet her, or earlier met her death, remember, by falling out a window and she was eaten by dogs. Jezreel was the center of idolatry and violence in the nation, and it will be later in the valley of Jezreel where Israel will be destroyed militarily by the Assyrians. It's going to be at Jezreel where God will break their bow. And then the people of Israel, having been conquered and defeated and primarily destroyed by the the Assyrians, will be scattered into all the parts of the world. And so here we begin to see the significance of the names that God chooses for Hosea and Gomer's children. Hosea, name your son Jezreel. Jezreel. After that evil pagan city. Name it Jezreel. Now the name Jezreel means God sows. S-O-W-S, like in, in planting. But the idea here is not of planting, but it's of scattering. 
God scattered Israel as seeds are scattered. When, the Israel, when God finally used the Assyrians to finally destroy Israel, the survivors were scattered throughout the earth. God scattered them so completely that to this day we still talk about the lost ten tribes of Israel. They were scattered into the earth. Hosea, name your kid, God scatters. Jezreel. Because in judgment, God is going to break the bow of Israel and scatter them. Now, maybe, just maybe, Jezreel is not too bad of a name to live with. You know, it might be like naming your kid Washington, D.C., but that's quite a bit to live with the rest of your life, you know, or something like that. But look at verse 6 of Hosea chapter 1. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo Ruhama. The word Lo in Hebrew means no or not. Lo means no or not. J Lo Ashmati, not my fault. Remember that? Here's Lo Ruhama. Ruhama is the Hebrew word, it's a wonderful word. It can mean compassion. It can mean to be loved, as it's translated in the New Testament. It can mean mercy, but name her no compassion. Name her no mercy. Name her not beloved. Not beloved. Tough name to grow up with now, right? Why did God choose this? Middle of verse 6. Name her Lo Rahama, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I will ever forgive them. The hearts of the people of Israel were hardened beyond being able to turn to the Lord. They were beyond being able to seek forgiveness. Their idolatrous, evil hearts were hardened. But look at verse 7. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah. So now we turn back to the southern kingdom. I will have compassion or love on mercy, or mercy on Judah, the southern kingdom. And then he goes on to say, the Lord goes on to say, and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. And so here we see a good example of what Paul quoted, what God said to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And I will have mercy, God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And so he's hardening Israel, but he's going to have compassion on Judah. In the light of God's grace and mercy shines through here, through the gloom of impending judgment on Israel, the light of God's mercy is going to shine on Judah, the southern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, Judah would experience the Lord's love and compassion in the form of the deliverance from the Assyrians. Now we know that later, God does not have the same compassion because they are conquered by the Babylonians and taken into captivity. But at least at this point in their, their history, God is going to deliver Judah. This would not be accomplished, God says, through military might, symbolized by the bow and the sword and the horses in battle, but by the Lord's intervention. And we know historically the word of the Lord was fulfilled to Judah in 701 B.C. when God supernaturally annihilated 185,000 soldiers of the powerful Assyrian army in one night. 
thereby ending their campaign against, against Judah. In the King James Version, it says, and I like this, in 2 Corinthians 19.35, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out, and he smote the camp of the Assyrians, and hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. That's 185,000. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. I've always wondered, who was it that rose early in the morning when they're all dead, dead corpses? Anyway, when somebody got up early in the morning, went out there, and everybody was dead. 185,000. God, the point is that God had compassion on Judah, but not Israel. But then a third child was born to Hosea and Gomer, verse 8 of Hosea chapter 1. And this is the, what we see when we get to... Uh, the quoting of Hosea in Romans, verse 8. And when Gomer had weaned lo Rahama, no compassion, no mercy, not beloved, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to Hosea, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Lo-Ami means not my people. You are not my people, I am not your God. God disowned Israel. They were no longer the people of God, and he was no longer their God. Of course, they hadn't been their, he hadn't been their God for 200 years. So that's, that's a given. Doesn't that sound familiar? Because in Romans 9, 6, it says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. Has God's word failed because of Israel? And then he says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Just because a person is descended from Israel physically does not make him or her truly a son or daughter of Israel. Case in point, Israel in Hosea's day, not God's people. Not God's people. But verse 10 of Hosea chapter 1 turns the corner. It looks to a point in time, even still future to us, when God will fulfill his promises to Israel, he will fulfill his, his word to Abraham. Verse 10 looks to that, that time future. Yet the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, lo me, not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. There will be a time and place where God said, just the same places where God said, you are not my people, will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So before we go back to Romans, we need to look at one more passage in Hosea, because this is the one that's quoted in Romans and in, in 1 Peter, and then we can start putting it together as far as the Gentiles are concerned. And it's in Hosea chapter 2, verse 21. Here we see that prophesied restoration of Israel that is to come, beginning at the 21st verse of Hosea chapter 2. It will come about in that day, a day that is yet to come, that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. Same place. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, 
You are my people, and they will say, you are my God. I want to point out something, the way it's translated in the English Standard Version, because it gives a more literal rendering. The New American Standard says, I will have compassion on her. What it says is there, I will have compassion literally on no compassion. Or as it says in the English Standard Version, I will have mercy on no mercy. That's who the her is. I will have mercy, and I will have mercy on lo ruhama, no mercy. And I will say to not my people, lo ami, I will say to lo ami, not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, they shall say, you are my God. God will restore Israel in the land, and they will once again be his people. And in case you're wondering when God's going to restore his people, and they'll become once again his people and his beloved once again. When, we, we don't know when that's going to be, but we really have a good idea where it started in many of our lifetimes. It began in 1948. When Israel became a nation again and God started drawing because he prophesied in Isaiah and other places, he's going to bring them back into the, the land. They still have a ways to go, but you can see God's hand all over it. Just this last week, the United States recognizing the Golan Heights as part of Israel. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's part of it. So now Paul takes this gracious principle of how God works and applies it to the Gentiles who are in Christ. So we go back to Romans chapter 9, the ninth chapter of Romans, the 25th verse. Paul quotes the very verses that we've been looking at, Hosea, and now he applies them to the Gentiles who will be called sons of the living God. As Gentiles, we were once low a me, not God's people, not my people, and we were once low Ruhamah, not beloved. Verse 25, again, of Romans chapter 9. And he says to Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, that is, lo a me, not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, lo ruhama, I will call her beloved. And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. As Gentiles, by nature, we were not God's people. In fact, Ephesians 2.12 says to the Gentile believers in Christ that before they came to Christ, it says to the Gentiles, you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. By nature, as Gentiles, you are not God's people. You were not God's people. Lo of me, not my people. We, before Christ, we were without hope, without God in the world. We were by nature, lo who Rama, not beloved. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love. He loves the whole world. But lo who Rama is to be the beloved, a special relationship with God. No compassion. But God says, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and I will call her who was not beloved, beloved. And Ephesians 2.13 continues there, but now in Christ Jesus, now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Jesus Christ. And then Peter, quoting Hosea, puts it this way. 
For you were not my people, lo of me, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, lo Ruhama, but now you have received mercy. You see, it was God's predetermined plan from the very beginning that through Christ and his death on the cross to make both Jews and Gentiles his beloved people. And that's the way Paul, remember, he penned his letter to the church at Rome, the beloved of Christ. Now, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul refers this to a mystery. In Scripture, a mystery is not a puzzlement or a riddle to be solved. A mystery is something that God had planned all along, but now it's been revealed. A mystery is something that was already in God's mind, already in God's plan, his predetermined plan, but it hadn't been revealed to us yet. You know, one of my favorite mysteries when Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Oh, really? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all, what? Be raised and caught up in the air to meet Christ in the glory of, of his coming. God planned that all along, but it just hadn't been revealed to us until Paul did. And, and so the mystery here that has been revealed is that God would offer salvation to the Gentiles. And that Jews and Gentiles would be one church. That by faith, Gentiles, along with Jews who by faith, would be the people of God. And we as Gentiles, along with Jews, would be called the sons of God. And in relation to that, Paul writes to the church, the one church in Colossians, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery, the mystery, which had been hidden from past ages and generation, but now has been made known to the saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope and glory. And of course, the tragedy is that everyone who is not a Christian, everyone who has not received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and trusted in Him, is shut off totally and completely from the blessing and the life of God. Not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone is one of God's beloved. It is only those who have received Christ as their Savior and who have trusted in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. Otherwise, you are without hope and you are without God in the world. Lo ami, lo ruhama. And this is true of Jews as well. The only way to be saved is by way of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Both Jews and Gentiles receive salvation the same way. And for this reason... It is only a remnant of the Jews who will be saved. In verse 27 of Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 10. We won't turn to that. But it's also a quote from Hosea. We move from the Gentiles to a remnant of the Jews who will be saved. Verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. 
Paul says Isaiah cries out. The word translated cries out is translated sometimes scream or screeched. This is not the prophet declares or thus saith the Lord. It's an emotional, loud crying out. Even though the physical sons of Israel are like the sand of the sea, Isaiah cries out that only a remnant will be saved. What is a remnant? It's a small piece. It's a small piece. Only a small piece will be saved. The word translated remnant here is often translated as residue. Only a residue will be saved. Isaiah prophesied in Judah, the southern kingdom, under Uzziah, the king of Judah who started out good and turned out bad, which is another tragedy. Isaiah began prophesying about 760 B.C. And he prophesied for about 48 years. And for this entire 48 years, he cried out to the people. He cried out to them, even though you number as the sands of the sea, even though you are many Jews, only a small piece are going to be saved. Only a small group will be saved. Only a remnant will be saved. And of course, we saw that in time of Elijah as well in the northern kingdom. After Elijah had that great experience on Mount Carmel where God rained down fire upon the altar and he slew the 450 prophets of Baal in the stream down at the bottom on Mount Carmel. You know, and Elijah got depressed and he cried out to God, said, oh, I'm, only, I'm the only one left, Lord. I'm the only one left. And the Lord reminded him that there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But 7,000 in Israel was only a remnant. A remnant. Even though there are many Jews, only a small piece will be saved. Only a small group will be saved. Only a remnant will be saved. And even all the Jews in the time of Christ, only a few believed. And out of all the Jews since the time of Christ, only a few believe. Just as it was at the time of Isaiah. Now verse 28 of Romans chapter 9 goes... Uh, from Isaiah, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 10, verse 23. It's the same passage he quoted before. And he says in verse 28 of Romans chapter 9, For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. What does that mean? It means that God is going to judge Israel and it's going to be a thorough judgment and it's going to be a fast judgment. It's going to take place very quickly. And do you see how this follows the same pattern that we've seen in Romans chapter 9? If then God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires, there's going to be, because of the hardening, there's going to be a fast, complete judgment on those whose hearts are hardened. In Hosea's day, the judgment was coming on Israel, and very few would escape that judgment. Very few would escape the judgment of the Assyrians that God used. The small numbers of Jews were to escape that great Syrian, Assyrian conquest. The rest entered into judgment of their unbelief and their rejection of God. And so it will be prophetically in the time of Hosea, Hosea and Isaiah that only a small group will be rescued while the vast number of Jews will enter into the judgment of God on them who reject him. 
Is it any wonder that Paul started this chapter by saying, oh, I wish I could be accursed for their sake? Because this is horribly, horribly tragic. Now we can see the point that Paul is making. The point is that Israel's rejection of the gospel is no violation of God's plan. God's word has not failed, as he has said. God's plan didn't go awry because of all this rejection and evil that we talked about. It was predicted. It was predicted by Hosea. It was predicted by Isaiah. And we saw it dramatized in history. So has God's plan been interrupted? No. The plan is what? Is fulfilled right on schedule. But Paul quotes one more verse in Isaiah, Romans chapter 9, verse 29. Paul wraps up this section this way. Just as Isaiah foretold, and thus the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. The word translated posterity, or might be translated offspring in your translation, the Greek word is sperma, which means seeds, seed. It's referring to a seed or to an offspring. Isaiah said only a remnant, and now he changes it to seed. It means the same thing. A remnant, a small seed, a small thing, just a little bit, just enough to get started again, just a little This reference, like the former reference from Isaiah, is to to demonstrate that God planned it all. And he planned that not all Israel would be saved, not all Israel would be exempt from judgment. The Jews of antiquity faced tremendous judgment, and the Jews at the time of Christ faced tremendous judgment. Historically, we know that uh, Titus, the the Roman general, he destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and, 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 and Judah in 70 AD, and again they were scattered. But in that scattering, God says, there's a seed. There's a seed here. There's a remnant here. The Jews of antiquity rejected God. The Jews of the time of Christ rejected God. The parallels are obvious here. The only reason that any of us is saved, the only reason any of us is saved, is because the Lord of Sabaoth left us a seed. Left a seed. A small seed, a remnant. There has always been a faithful remnant to God. And if it wasn't for this small seed, the faithful remnant of God's people throughout all the ages, he says we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, completely wiped out, completely destroyed. It's only a miracle of God that any of us survived. It's only a miracle of God that any of us survived. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us seed, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah and become like Gomorrah. This was being spoken about Israel. They would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, evil and obliterated, but God has kept his faithful remnant. But Sodom and Gomorrah also were not Jewish cities. They were pagan Gentile cities. And they were famous as the most evil and wicked cities, and they were annihilated. Isaiah says that is what Israel was about to become, except the Lord intervened. And think of it this way as we close with this. The most favored people in the world, the most favored people in the world, Israel, 
were on their way to the worst pagan wickedness and to destruction apart from God's grace. They needed the grace of God. And that is what any one of us is alike apart from God's grace in our life. You are on your way to be like Sodom and Gomorrah if God does not step in and save you. If you are outside of Christ, if you have not asked Jesus Christ to forgive you and you have not trusted in him, Paul says, you are living without God, lo me, and without hope, lo hurama, in the world. The wages of sin is death. What's the rest of that? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But God demonstrates his love toward us in while we were sinners. Christ died for us. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves. Because to ourselves, doing what we want to do and trying to make things go the way we want them to go, we are horribly, horribly contaminated by a sinful human nature. So contaminated that Paul says in Romans, there is none who seeks after God. No, not one. There is none righteous, not even one. But Father, because of your grace and through the Holy Spirit of God, you reach into our hearts and into our souls. And you do a work, Father, that even gives us the faith to believe. For we were once not your people. We become your people where we were once had no compassion. Lord, we, you had compassion on us. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy for doing what we cannot do for ourselves, Father. And Father, I thank you that even now your Holy Spirit is at work, moving and generating in our souls and our hearts, Lord, that what it takes that we might turn to you, Lord, that we might turn to you, that we might receive you, that we might commit our lives to you, and we shall be called the sons of the living God. And for this we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.